Hi, it's dating coach Chris Luna from Craft Charisma. Welcome to the Craft Charisma podcast, our free audio coaching program where we interview the top experts in the world at helping you become the man you've always wanted to be. My guest today is Dr. Srini Pillay. Let me start by saying Srini is one of the most brilliant people that I've ever encountered. You'll hear what I'm talking about through the responses to the questions that I ask him, whether they're about research or they're about his personal experience in the human condition. Srini is a world-renowned Harvard-trained psychiatrist, an executive coach, a keynote speaker, an author, a consultant, a clinician. He does therapy and a brain researcher. He is the founder and CEO of NeuroBusiness Group. We'll talk about some of his entrepreneurial projects. And he is currently an assistant professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. He also runs a psychiatric center for them. He is the author of several books, including Life Unlocked, Seven Revolutionary Lessons to Overcome Fear, The Science Behind the Art of Attraction, as well as Tinker, Dabble, Doodle, Try. Srini, can you tell me a little bit about your background, the work you do, and how you got into it? Sure. So my my background um, is is actually, uh, there are a lot of different things that I'm interested in and a lot of things that I've studied. So I'm a psychiatrist. Um, with, uh, who used to direct the anxiety disorder service uh, at McLean Hospital, uh, which is one of Harvard's sort of, uh, largest psychiatric hospitals. Uh, and I'm also an assistant professor part-time there, so I, I teach as well. Um, and I studied brains for 17 years uh, by doing brain imaging research, uh, functional magnetic resonance imaging, which is essentially looking at brain blood flow. Um, and so a lot of the work that I do right now is I have a clinical practice um, and I also uh, have a, an executive coaching practice, and I've pioneered uh, a field called neurocoaching. Uh, there are a few people in the world who I think were um, sort of starting to do this at the same time. And essentially what that is is helping people understand how to leverage their greatest capacities by changing their brains. And as a result of that, I am the CEO of Neuro Business Group, um, which is a company that works with Fortune 500 companies internationally to uh, help them develop leaders uh, so that they can manage anxiety, manage uncertainty, manage volatility, develop more fulfilling relationships, um, and also uh, sort of become more agile and become more creative. Um, so that's one part of my life. In addition to that, I also work in biotechnology across cancer, heart disease, stroke, a bunch of different things looking at um, working with investment companies to help them understand which medications will make it, uh, will make it to FDA approval. Um, and I have three early stage tech startups and I'm writing a musical as well. So I do a lot of different things. That sounds amazing. What are the three tech startups? Uh, they're, they're all related to psychology and the brain. So uh, the first is essentially taking the, the, it's, uh, the it's called NBG Vivo V. And it's a collaboration with VivoV where we have a, a, an online platform that's a learning platform that has a lot of bells and whistles to be able to allow for much greater interaction and self-assessment and dynamic learning. Um, the second has to do with a platform that I've created about using cognitive interventions uh, for, for CompuCeuticals. So essentially computer-based interventions to help people manage um, things like anxiety and uncertainty so that they can learn how to do that more effectively and have instant access to them. And the first product that we've created in early stage development is actually a teddy bear that um, 
is that provides positive affirmations. And so there are ways to interact with the spay. And a lot of this is based on a lot of scientific and clinical research. And then the third, um, the one that is least developed is, is one called HUBU, which is about, stands for Humans Being Human. And it's essentially a platform in which people can interact with each other. Um, and that idea has been evolving. When we started it, we wanted to distinguish between expertise and experience and see what the difference was. You know, if like would a psychiatrist helping somebody deal with anxiety give different advice than someone who had actually experienced it? Uh, but right now, if, for all kinds of reasons, it's, it's evolved into can we create a platform in which people can communicate through linear and nonlinear ways? Because you know, I think we all feel like um, there's a kind of logic that's getting spread around the world that sterilizes out the human condition. And I think the human condition is much more powerful and transcends logic. So part of what I want to do is, is take, take a deeper look at that. And uh, I'm also writing a couple of books at the same time around uh, associated topics. Can you expand on what that means? Sure. So essentially, um, when when I talk to you or you talk to me, there's a, you know there's conscious communication. It's like, well, you're talking to me, and I'm understanding what your question is. But most of brain processing is actually unconscious as well. So as I'm listening to the cadence of your and, and I'm not thinking this consciously, but as I'm responding to the cadence of your sentence or the warmth of your voice or your interest, or your curiosity, or your clarifications, it's adding more and more sort of you know, non-rational, but really important um, information about who you are. And for me to get to learn who you are, part of what I have to do is learn how to pay attention to what I'm hearing. So part of what we want to do on this platform is encourage people to even communicate the way I'm communicating with you now, essentially to get more real rather than having these plastic uh, you know, social media type photographs where we're just taking selfies and smiling and acting like life is one way when in fact it's much more complex. I think the other thing that we want to do is also allow people to communicate using symbols or pictures without, you know, like rather than saying to you, hey, I'm here at this place, check out this great steak I'm having. You know, I could just, because I thought of you, I could send you some picture without any particular explanation and you could respond to it with a picture as well. And all of a sudden, we have a communication going that transcends words, and, and that's part of what we're aiming to do. And a lot of this also comes from a lot of deeper psychological research, um, both clinically from Carl Jung um, and you know, from even as early as Origins of Sigmund Freud and also more contemporary cognitive theories as well. How is what you're describing different than emojis? I think an emoji is, a, is an illustration, and it's a predetermined illustration that you can choose. Uh, whereas what I'm describing is a self-chosen communication that bears some relevance to what the self is. Um, so I, I think emojis could be part of this, uh, but I think when you choose something and you choose to share it, and it could be, a, and and I think even even more so if you choose if you share that, and it's a photograph you took, then there's more and more of you involved in that sharing. So it would be a photo that a person would take. It could be. It, it could. It could be an image. You know, it could be an image that you got from off the internet that you feel like showing somebody, or you could increase the level of personalization of the message. My feeling is that in general, to deepen relationships and to really enhance motivation, we really uh, need to bring as much of our personal selves to the table as possible. I think that's a great point. So, you're talking about a tool uh, that you are working to create to do that. 
how does somebody who's listening do that? Right. So you, you also mentioned paying attention, right? You talked about the importance of paying attention. How does somebody do that if they're not aware that they aren't paying attention or that they aren't present or they aren't fully engaged in their communication? I think, you know, most of the time what we realize is that we are, we realize indirectly when we're not paying attention. So firstly, just as a general statement, all of us spend 46.9% of the day daydreaming. And the last book I wrote, Tinker, Dabble, Doodle, Try, is about how you can use that to your advantage. So I think paying attention is valuable, but I also think that mind wandering is valuable, and we can talk about that at another time, but I just wanted to set the stage for that. In terms of how your question, which is how do you know when you're not paying attention, I think a lot of times you feel like someone else is disengaged, or you realize you're not getting to your goal, or you realize that you're going a little bit too slowly, or you realize that, that, that somehow you're making mistakes over and over again, I think those are the signals that should have us go back and say, hey, is there something disrupting my ability to stay present in this conversation or on this task? And if so, what could it be? And this is something that I've, I've actually studied from the point of view of fear. Because so often in new situations, people are afraid, and not even consciously, even unconsciously. And a lot of people are not aware that unconsciously uh, you know, unconscious fear, because the fear center is connected to the thinking centers in the brain, unconscious fear can actually disrupt fluent thinking as well. And so in terms of, you know, how do you know you're, you're, you're not paying attention? I think those things that I said is true about, are true. And then in terms of well, what do I do about this? Well, you can pay attention to the attention or you can pay attention to what is disrupting the attention like fear. Can you talk to us a little bit about where fear and anxiety originate from? Yeah, so so fear and anxiety fear and anxiety are a response to threat. And in the brain, uh, there are a number of different regions that are impacted by this. One of the main regions is called the amygdala. And the amygdala actually processes all emotions, but when we're afraid, the amygdala actually we can see it on a brain scan lights up. Now, conscious fear like, oh my god, I can't believe I'm going on this date. I don't know what to do with this. Uh, I, this whole situation is overwhelming. Conscious fear activates the amygdala, and we know this. But even when you are not aware that you that you are feeling afraid, if we looked in your brains, in 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 your brain, we could see that the amygdala is lit up. In fact, if I show a fearful face to someone who has cortical blindness, where the the occipital cortex, the part of their brain. That, that, is, that, that is involved in seeing is knocked out, so they can't see anything. If I show them a picture of, of, of a fearful face, it, it will also light up the amygdala. So fear, in short, involves a number of brain regions, but it activates uh, the emotion processor in the brain, which is the amygdala. How does fear and anxiety affect, I mean, you talked about, about the brain, but how does it affect the body? Well, the, because the brain and the body are all very connected, right? I mean, a lot, of pe- a lot of times people forget the fact that we all came from a single cell. Like, all of this was just one cell at some point in our lives. It was the sperm and, and, and the egg. They came together to form a single cell called a zygote. And that then started to actually divide. And eventually, the brain went one direction. You know, the feet went another direction. But the truth is, the entire body is represented in the brain. That's number one. And number two, 
the brain is constantly sending signals to the rest of your body. So when you have amygdala activation as a result of fear, you get this fight or flight response where the amygdala starts to send signals down the fight or flight system, which is also called the sympathetic nervous system. It releases a lot of the fear hormones like adrenaline or noradrenaline, and then you start to sweat and your heart starts to race. And so when you are afraid, you can experience a full-blown panic attack as well. It's sweating, trembling, unsteadiness, uh, feeling like life is a bit unfamiliar, uh, elevated heart rate, uh, nausea, tingling, shortness of breath, um, you know, chills, choking, chest pain, uh, fear of dying and fear of going crazy. These are some of the symptoms you might actually experience when you're feeling dissociated. Like a lot of people just before a date, I mean, most people say, ah, you know, I'm a little nervous and then I settle down. A lot of people just become completely tongue-tied and frozen because their bodies are in this state, in this sort of sympathetic overdrive. And as a result, they're worrying about sweaty palms and they're worrying about the fact that they can hear, feel their hearts in their chest, hoping that nobody else can, 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 can hear that as well. What are some examples of the types of fears that somebody might have? And so that way, if somebody's listening to this, they can start to identify and connect that this is something that they might be doing. Sure. I mean, I, I think we're all, well, not only are we filled with fear, but we're wired to pay attention to threat. And fear is a response to threat. So I think in generic terms, people are afraid of failure. You know, they're afraid, for example, if they go on a date, what if somebody rejects them? They're afraid if they are in a relationship and they become committed to this person, what if they stop being interested? Um, in business deals, they're afraid of taking a chance because they don't really know what's ahead of them. Uh, and then some people are also afraid of success. In fact, a lot of us are because we're always double messaging our brains. Right? We're saying things like, I want to have the most fulfilling relationship in my life. and I want to be really close to this person. And then we have other things like, but what if I fail? What if they make fun of me? What if, I, what if I'm wasting my time? If you send all, imagine that you are your brain receiving all these messages, your brain will probably just make you freeze. So fear of failure, fear of success, um, I think fear of intimacy is, is a big deal. I think a lot of people say that they want to be close to people, but even you know, as a therapist, one of the things I notice is even people with a tremendous amount of depth will start out being fairly superficial, you know, start of saying things like, you know, how do I do this? And will use a kind of more tabloid approach to their lives, like what are the five things I need to do to get there? And I've got a lot of three and five things that I generally talk to people about. But I also say to them that we have to get into the nooks and crannies of who you are and that these frameworks are just frameworks. And I think people are afraid of self-examination because, and they're, and they're afraid of intimacy because it's, you know, it's frightening to be discovered if you don't really know how someone's going to take who you truly are. Because most of us are paradoxes. We're made up of all kinds of things. You know, we're made up of acceptable anger and unacceptable anger, acceptable fears and unacceptable fears. And to really be intimate, I think you really have to be able to be vulnerable because that's what it means to be human. You, use these, you talk about these frameworks, right? So how, how does somebody begin to cut back? I mean, they're almost like layers of fat. How do people cut sort of back to this like deeper level where they're able to be vulnerable or authentic? Yeah, you know, so I think in a number of different ways. One, one framework that I teach for overcoming the fear of either self-examination, a fear of examining some, something else in a relationship, or a fear of just pursuing what you really truly want in life, 
there are there are a bunch of brain studies that have been that looked at how you can shift brain blood flow from the anxiety center back to the thinking brain and and you know obviously like any research there's lots of questions there's lots of caveats but in order to summarize this framework i've used a mnemonic called circa uh, which is c i r c a and for anyone listening i would say take out a piece of paper and a pen if you're interested in knowing how to manage your fear and shift blood from the anxiety center to the thinking brain, the first C is for chunking, which essentially means let's break it down. So you meet someone and you're thinking, hey, you know, I don't know if, I, I don't know if this is gonna last, what do I know? It's like, wait, you know what, take it easy. Because you're telling your brain right now, you're giving your brain an expectation. And I think even as people grow older, for example, they often feel more pressured to meet someone. So they tell everybody, I've gotta find the right person now. And so what I would say is if you're in this fear state that's actually alienating somebody else, the first C for chunking is saying, let's pull back and break it down. What am I going to do in the first day, first week, first month? And it's, it's not that that's a plan. It's that that provides a message to the brain to say, we're going to take it as it goes. And, and essentially, the brain is less freaked out. So the first C is chunking. The I is ignore mental chatter. You know, for a lot of us in any situations, whether it's work or relationship, you know, are they going to like me? But what if they find this out about me? What if I eat this and they don't like that I eat that? What if I wear this? What if I smell like I mean, it's like a thousand fears. So what we want to do in general is recognize that the essence of being really transcends a lot of this. And that if we just ignore that mental chatter and practice mindfulness for a little bit by just placing our attention on the breath and just letting the mind do whatever it's doing. This is for like 20 minutes twice a day would be ideal, but if it's, that sounds like too much, start with five minutes. And, and, and every time your mind wanders, bring the breath calmly back. A lot of studies show that this kind of mindfulness exercise will actually decrease brain blood flow in the anxiety center of the brain. Then the R in the mnemonic is reality check, which is a form of self-talk. And essentially, what you say is, this too shall pass. Like, you know, I'm so nervous, what am I gonna, that'll go, we're gonna get to know each other. You know, I'm so nervous about this new opportunity, this new job, that's fine, this too shall pass. Or some, I messed up big time, what am I gonna do? This too shall pass. Then the, the C of, of the second C of Circa is control check. And control check is essentially like the serenity prayer. Like, what can I control and what can I not control? I can't control you know, spontaneous things that are gonna come out of me, making mistakes. And what I can control is doing my best to be authentic and communicate who I am. And so by focusing on what you can control, you actually decrease the freak out in your brain as well. And then the, the A at the end of Circa is attention shift, which is basically, let me take my, you know, it's like, oh, I messed up big time at this dinner, at this date, what am I gonna do? I messed up big time at this job, you know, I. So what you do is you, you take your attention, which is like a flashlight, off the problem onto the solution. What's going to solve this? Because so often we forget to ask that question. So Circa is chunking, ignore mental chatter, reality check, control check, and attention shift. And this is one of the frameworks that you can use when you're facing a situation that makes you feel a little bit too overwhelmed, or even if you are not if your heart is not racing and you're not breathing fast, but you're finding that you're messing up a lot or you're going too slowly, you can assume that unconscious fear, fear that you can't literally feel in your bones, is interrupting your attention and try that out as a hypothesis to see if it helps you do better at what you want, at, 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 at exactly what you're doing.
I think this is absolutely awesome advice. I know there's a lot of guys who listen to this. I mean, the women listen to this as well, but they're dealing with a lot of these anxieties, whether it's in their personal life. I mean, you used some examples earlier, or it's they're out at some singles event and they're trying to figure out whether or not to approach somebody or they're on a date and they're feeling anxiety or they're feeling anxiety about, is this the right person as they decide whether or not they want to transition into a relationship? And all this friction causes a lot of like a lot of emotions and a lot of emotional confusion and also causes a lot of hesitation. So I, I think this is really, this will be really helpful for them. What, what, what are some other effective strategies that you could recommend for overcoming fear and anxiety? I mean, you know, there's a, there are a lot of different things to think about. I would say as, as a general, um, you know, as a general sort of statement, I think trying to boost your confidence can really uh, sort of work well if you are, um, if, if you essentially use self-talk. Now, when I say this to people, a lot of times they're like, what are you talking about? You know, people will think I'm a crazy person. Should I say this out loud? Should I say, you know, the truth is you can say this out loud or say it in your mind. I often will say to people, try saying it out loud when you're alone just to see what it feels like. Now, the next question is, well, what kinds of self-talk can help to boost my confidence? A couple of things. The first is based on um, a theory of Daniel Wegner, a psychologist at Harvard, um, which is called ironic process theory. And what he found was that if you frame your goals using the word not, like I must not mess up, I must not drop my knife and fork on a date, I must not say this to somebody, uh, the next thing you know, you're doing exactly the opposite of what that is when you're under stress. And what Daniel Wegner showed again and again is that ironic process theory teaches us that when we frame our goals with a not, under stress, the brain doesn't have the energy to actually comply. So it does the exact opposite of what we want it to do. This has been shown with soccer players, for example. If you attach eye-tracking devices to their eyes, and if they are scoring a penalty, if they say, do not kick the ball to the right, the eyes go immediately to the right. So, and this has been found for office romances as well. People find, if they say, I must not fall in love with this person, the next thing you know, you're head over heels in love with them. And so the first thing is write down your goals. And if you see a knot in there, like I, I should not say this, or I should not drop this, or I should not do this, ask yourself to just frame it in a positive way, which is not saying be happy about it, but just say, rather than saying, you know, I should not say this, say what you're going to say. Rather than saying I should not lose my temper, say that you want to be calm. So the, the first thing to boost confidence so as not to make mistakes under stress is to avoid using the word not when you are formulating goals. The second thing, which has to do with uh, decreasing brain blood flow in the anxiety center, is, uh, is labeling your affect. You know, if you're pissed off, say to yourself, I'm pissed off. If you're nervous, say you're nervous. When you call out the emotion, it actually decreases brain blood flow in the amygdala, which is the brain's anxiety center. And then the third thing is Ethan Cross and his colleagues have actually found that if to boost confidence and decrease stress, if you're trying to give yourself a boost, speak in the second person and call yourself by name. So for example, if I was gonna, just before a date, if I said, listen, I gotta you know, psych myself to make sure that I'm not freaking out, my hands are sweating, I don't know what to do. Part of what you say is, you say, I would say, Srini, you're gonna crush this. So rather than saying, okay, I'm gonna crush this, by calling yourself by name, and by saying you, you are distancing yourself from the anxious part of you, 
And you're realizing there's another part of you that's totally psyched and totally wants to get into the situation and wants this to work out. And Ethan Cross and his colleagues have shown that in order to decrease stress and boost confidence, that's a really important and effective strategy. So those are three of, of the many strategies uh, that, that you can learn to use to decrease uh, fear and improve confidence as well. I feel like sometimes in our lives we get into these like, I know I have where we get into sort of these thought circles or emotional circles, right? Um, maybe we're thinking about something or feeling something or we're, we're sort of reenacting a trauma or reacting to a trauma or reacting to what we perceive as an expectation for either ourselves in the future or what we think society or our family or culture expects of us. How does somebody break these patterns? So you know, part of what happens is is when we develop when, when we are going in circles and this trauma exists, we are essentially caught in what I call habit hell. And habit hell means that your brain has decided to form automatic pathways for information to move down. And that's because neurons that fire together, wire together. So if we have these patterns that are established, it's very hard to get out of them. So when we're thinking about how to change habits, uh, you know, we can talk about this structurally the way I will now, but I will say the story does actually get much, much deeper because it goes beyond what we're talking about. A lot of people feel like they can change habits by just stating their intentions, for example. But but studies show that it's actually the space between intention and action where things fail. So if you have a habit of uh, always saying the wrong thing on a date or habit of eating something that you don't want to be eating, you know, 97% of diets fail after three years, people often regain all the weight. Why does this happen? Because people are just forcing themselves to do stuff that they can't relate to at all. So the first thing is to make the change truly and authentically relevant to you. And by this, I mean quite deeply. Like, you know, it might be obvious to some people, for example, that uh, the aesthetic matters. I mean, everybody wants to look better at some level, but some people care more than others. I think for other people, they may care to, to be in better shape because they like playing tennis and they like sport. They want to be able to move around. So find what is authentically your shtick with regard to the, the habit that you want to change. And then the second thing is to ask yourself a little bit more deeply, how can I put this new habit into play? And what we know is that there are two kinds of intentions. There are goal intentions, which are, you know, I want to lose 30 pounds. And then there are implementation intentions, which are, I want to lose 30 pounds by losing five pounds a month for the next six months by going to the gym three times a week on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, and changing my diet in X, Y, or Z way. The more you spell it out, the more likely your brain is to sign on to that. And then we go into, so, so essentially what I'm saying is, Get real with yourself. Know your real motivation. And secondly, use implementation intentions to spell things out. The third thing I would point out is that it's really important to ask yourself uh, how you have psychologically, how you are motivating yourself. So there was a, there's a phenomenon called repetition compulsion, which is a lot like these circles you were just talking about when you get caught up in the circles. Well, Freud and a bunch of people were standing around looking at the way kids behave. And one of the things they said was, you know, this is kind of weird. Like we're watching the kid in the car and we're noticing that the kid is throwing out a doll or throwing out a teddy bear and throwing out a toy. And 
and so it, like immediately that that's sort of a weird behavior. Like we don't usually take things that we want and throw them out. So they're wondering what's going on there. Then they say to make things even more bizarre, the child starts to cry. And then you're like, wait a minute, you threw the toy out. Now you're crying. And then the mother brings the toy back and then the child gets really happy. And then the mother turns around and the child throws the toy out again. Now, on the surface, we just think this is the way kids like to have fun. Maybe it's the way they like to taunt their mothers and maybe it's the way they like to play. And that may all be true. But one of the questions that this observing this behavior brought up um, a long time ago was, is it possible that what the child was doing was really trying to master disappointment? Like, we don't want to be sad. And so we want to be good at being sad, which of course is fine. If it teaches us how to cope with sad things, that's fine. But the question that they asked is, are we wired to master disappointment and not seek fulfillment? And these habit pathways are pathways that are, are built on mastering disappointment. We, we enter destructive relationship after destructive relationship after destructive relationship because we're just trying to get good at the fact that life sucks and when it sucks, we want to be great at it. But part of what we want to actually ask ourselves is, what if we said, I want to have a fulfilling life and I want to seek fulfillment. And so what I would say is first build fulfilling activities into your day. I mean, how many of you deliberately say, I'm going to do this for, for, for fulfillment this year. Like I'm going to go to the gym because it makes me feel good. I'm going to listen to my favorite songs because it makes me feel good. I'm going to get a massage because it makes me feel good. I'm going to have something that I really like because it makes me feel good. I mean, ask yourself, are you living a life that's based on mastering disappointment or seeking fulfillment? So, so just to summarize that, I think habit circuits can be interrupted, especially if you are number one, authentic, and you make it relevant to you. Number two, if you break it down and use implementation intentions. And number three, if you orient yourself to seeking a fulfilling life rather than just mastering disappointment over and over again. I mean, you brought up an interesting point and in some ways you've already begun to answer it, but I think there's a lot of people who are listening to this who wonder if a brain can change. Because right? you talked about how the brain begins to develop these neural pathways and I know there's a few different, I mean, there's probably lots of books on the subject, uh, but can you talk about or can you give us some clarity around whether the brain changes? I think I know the answer to that, but how it changes and um, let's just start with that. Yeah. We, you know, so yes, the brain can change, and that's why I do what I do. It's because what we would do is we would see brain blood flow looking a particular way. Like in anxious patients, you would see the, the amygdala lit up all the time. Then they would go through some of the techniques I just told you about, and then you look at the brain again, and all of a sudden, there, that blood flow is not happening in that region, and it's redistributed to other parts of the brain, like in the thinking brain. So we know from brain imaging studies that the brain can change because you can actually, it's actually observable. And, and, and it's observable before and after. And, and there are a lot of studies that show that we can decrease obsessions this way. We know that reframing and refocusing can change brain blood flow. Uh, there are uh, children who have severe disorders where sometimes an entire hemisphere of the brain has to be removed. And part of what we know conventionally is, wow, if you remove one side of the brain, the other side of the body is not going to work. Well, that's not true. At a certain age, if you train the brain, the brain will start to behave like it, it will start to know how to actually move the other side of the body. 
And even in elderly patients who, who, uh, who, who want to multitask, for example, you can teach them. There's a, there's a program called NeuroRacer, which is a, a program that teaches people how to multitask effectively that shows that people in their 70s and 80s can start to behave and attend like people in their 20s just by teaching them these tasks. So we definitely know that the brain can change, and that's why all of this matters. What is the correlation between blood flow and thoughts or neuropathways? Now, this is a matter of great contention right now. Um, but I would say, in general, uh, brain blood flow indicates that there's activity in a certain part of the brain. So it's telling you that the underlying tissue is doing a lot of processing. So I think most people would say, uh, on the surface, we believe that seeing brain blood flow changes means that that tissue is demanding that, that it gets oxygen so that it can do what it needs to do. Now, the controversy is that some people believe that there's too indirect a correlation, and this gets into semantics in research. So what I'll say is that there are caveats around that, but in general, brain blood flow tells us that there's more oxygen because the tissue is being used for a particular purpose. In a similar way that when somebody's like lifting weights that their chest might puff up if they're doing bench press or uh, their arms might pump up if they're doing curls? I mean, is that the same type of idea? Yes, it is. It's exactly the same type of idea. So, you know, when you're using a particular region, you're getting oxygen delivered to that region, and that region is being stimulated. And, you know, thoughts, which I think was your original question, thoughts actually come, are, are, are neural activations that rely heavily on emotion as well. You know, it's like nobody, if you think about people who've discovered very important literal things, like even, you know, mathematical theories, They've been very enthusiastic about it a lot of the time. And, they, and that emotion has driven them to actually feel something. So when you look at the brain of people, of the brains of people who are enthusiastically figuring things out, you will see that emotion regions are changing and you'll see that thinking regions are activated. So all in all, because thoughts are simply um, a representation of what is going on in underlying neural tissue, by, by sending blood to that tissue, you can change the tissue and therefore change your thinking. How does something shift from, say, a conscious thought to something that becomes more of like an unconscious habit? So I, I think probably one of the commonest ways in which that occurs is through repetition, but it can also be a memory, right, that's getting stored. So uh, it could be, I, I think through repetition, you can build pathways that teach you one of two things. You can either have, have an unconscious way of doing something, or you can have an unconscious way of making the same error over and over again. So repetition by itself is not necessarily a strategy. I think that there has to be more um, to that. However, another way that unconscious uh, thoughts start to manifest is they actually begin to, uh, you, your memories, some, some things are inherited, so they're already stored in your brain, and a lot of times when we form memories early on in life, they get stored in the brain. Now, my last book, which was Tinker, Dabble, Doodle, Try, was about activating unfocused circuits in the brain. And by unfocusing, we can begin to access some of these unconscious thoughts. Now, if you ask me, you know, well, how, wh why would I want to unfocus? I have trouble focusing most of the time. Well, that's because the brain really works best in cognitive rhythm. And by... If you, if you focus all the time, it might sound great, but you're going to restrict yourself to these conscious thoughts. So focus depletes the brain of energy. 
it prevents you from seeing stuff going on around you. So you may be pursuing somebody who you're mildly interested in, but you would not even really be paying attention to somebody you could be interested in around you. You know, focus also keeps you with your nose to the grindstone, so you don't have any idea of what's coming up. You know, there may be an occasion where you could meet someone, but because you're so buried in your work, you don't go to the place. Fourth, focus keeps you outside of creativity because when you're focused on one point, you cannot connect two points in the brain. And lastly, focus, it, the unfocused circuits in the brain overlap with the, with, with the self. And so when we talk about these, these uh, um, unfocusing, what unfocusing does, and this is related to your question about how unfocused thoughts, uh, how unconscious thoughts um, become manifest, when we unfocus in the mind, in, and there are a number of techniques that I teach in the book, so things like napping for five to 15 minutes will give you one to three hours of clarity, or doodling or scribbling on a piece of paper will increase your memory by 29%. Um, and we can go into other techniques as well related to this, but essentially, when you unfocus, what you are doing is you're giving your brain a chance to put some of these puzzle pieces together. Now, when you focus, your brain operates a lot like a fork. It's like picking up all conscious things because it, it picks up what is most obvious. But metaphorically, when you unfocus, then you begin to dredge up some of these unconscious thoughts because your brain acts like other silverware metaphorically. It acts like a spoon to pick up the delicious melange of flavors in your brain. So the scent of your grandmother, which might be something you don't think about consciously, but it's just unconsciously there, becomes activated. Or it, it acts like, like chopsticks where your brain in the unfocused state will start to connect different things that in the focused state it didn't. And in that way, unconscious things may then come up. And then it also acts like a toothpick because it goes into the nooks and crannies of your brain and the, and the unfocused state actually uh, excavates your brain metaphorically so that some of these unconscious parts of you, which is a lot of you, uh, start to factor into the formula and into your everyday work. Dating coach Chris Thoney here. This is the perfect time to take a quick break to talk to you about three simple things that you can do to dramatically change your life. First, listen to this entire podcast and then subscribe through SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher. This way you'll immediately be notified every time we share a new release. If you listen and apply the ideas we discuss on these podcasts, it will change your life forever. Second, go to craftchristmas.com, create an account, and become a member of our community. There you can read articles, listen to podcasts, watch videos, ask us questions, and document your journey in our forums. Great men don't become great on their own. All great men are members of a community, and Craft Charisma is your community. Finally, if you're serious, and I know that you are, about making massive changes to your life as quickly as possible, check out our live coaching programs on our website. Craft Charisma live programs are the fastest way to improve your dating and social life. And who knows? Attend our live programs, let us get to know you, and you may end up as a member of the Craft Charisma team. Again, thank you for listening. Now back to the podcast. I'm going to come back to uh, Tinker, Dabble, Doodle, Draw. Before I do, I want to talk to you a little about your, your second book, and that's The Science of the Law of Attraction. Can you talk a little bit about what the law of attraction is? Yeah. So when people talk about the law of attraction historically, the way they talk about it is you just have to strongly manifest something, and the moment you start imagining it, it will come to you. Now, I think a lot of people... Um, 
it's misunderstood. It's, you know, there are people who are still written checks to themselves that are in the death drawers and with no money coming to them. And, and I think a lot of people want to believe in a consciousness that exists outside of linear consciousness. And I, for one, am one of those people who believes that. But the law of attraction uh, actually has some physical uh, phenomena that, that are real. And I can mention a couple of them, and that's why I wrote this book. So let's say someone says, if you just think the right thing, you'll draw the right person to you. Well, what they're saying is, what is what is going on in your brain is, is actually something that can change the brain of someone else. So let's take one person for whom, let's say they're at, they're at a date, and the law of attraction, and you want the law of attraction to operate. One principle you should remember is the principle of mirror neurons, which essentially means that when I move my hands, let's say I move my hands upward, your brain will start to activate as if you are moving your hands upwards as well. And as a result, you're, but, it, but it's sub-threshold, so you don't actually move your hand. Similarly, if I have an intention, and it's a little weird, your brain will activate and will pick up that intention automatically. Also, when I have an emotion, your brain picks that up as well. You know how sometimes you're around people who bum you out a little, and you're, you're feeling fine, and the moment you're around them, suddenly you start feeling weird, even though you weren't feeling weird before that. You know, and, part, and, and the converse is also true. Some people just really make you feel psyched because they're psyched and it, they're, the emotions are physiologically contagious. So in the law of attraction, what, what, what we know is that you, know, you create what you imagine because if you attend the date and your brain is filled with fear, the person sitting across from you is going to, because of mirror neurons, pick up that exact fear and they're going to start to feel like they're afraid, even if they weren't afraid. Whereas if you train your brain and you change your interiority and you start to imagine something beautiful and something that you want, you're, because of mirror neurons, this will change what's happening in the brain of the person across from you. So in the book, I describe the principle of mirror neurons. And what I would say to people who are listening to this is remember that emotions are contagious. And if you want to attract something to you, embody it and be it, because that's how other people will feel about it. So that's, that's number one. Number two has to do with uh, what we just talked about, about fear and, um, and attention. So people say, well, if you attend to something and you think about it over and over again, you'll probably find it. Well, there are way reasons this happens and there are times when this does happen. Now, the brain is a very flexible organ, but it also you know, has a limit. It has a ceiling. And because it has the ceiling, you know, metaphorically, let's say we say we all have 10 attentional units. If you use eight of those units to pay attention to threat, to always be looking over your back, to be wondering about negative things about the future, you've only got two units of attention left to find what you want. And for a lot of us, because fear always jumps to the front of the line, for a lot of us, fear just takes up these units automatically and we start to look for threat. And so if we learn how to release a few more units, let's say you have eight units attending to threat and two more units just to, for, for, for the relationship you want or for the job that you want. Well, if you release five units for that, now all of a sudden your fear is not taking up all of that time. You're spending more time attending to what you want. The moment you start, your brain starts to know what that is. It has a deeper understanding of what you're doing. And we, because it has a deeper understanding of what you're doing, it will then start to activate the brain's GPS system to unconsciously put together a plan for you to get to your goal. Whereas, 
And, and so in, in those two instances, the law of attraction operates because mirror neurons make emotions contagious, and so you attract to you what you are. And in the second instance, the law of attraction is operating because by reducing the fear and paying more attention to what you want, your brain is getting the right, as, as more information about how to put information together to get you to your goals. And in the book itself, I talk about a lot, you know, a, a lot more techniques that you can use to activate what we call the law of attraction. Can you go into a couple more of them? Sure. Uh, so when you know in, when we think about um, consciousness, you know, what, one of the, one of the things, and this is related to mirror neurons, uh, you can place your attention uh, at the level of of thinking, you know, like I've got a separate brain and you've got a separate brain, and and you can start to conceptualize the field like that, like like what I said about the dating situation, or if you're interacting with family, or if you're interacting with friends. My personal belief is that all of us, all of our brains are actually open to one another. And that's because whether we like it or not, whether we're empathic or not, it just really doesn't matter. What really matters is that, is that we realize that our brains are connected because we've got holes in our heads. And because we have holes in our heads, whatever's going on in my brain, because of my eyes and my ears and my nose and my mouth, all of these things are open to the world. So I think of human brains as a collective, as being more like beads on a chain, uh, beads on a chain, with consciousness being the chain that is connecting them. And so if you take that, and, and there's a lot of evidence to actually show that this is true, besides mirror neurons, um, there was a study that actually looked at people in France and in India speaking Spanish words, and just thinking those words, and then they, their brains, were, there were leads on their, on, their, on their scalps and they were connected via the internet to a person in another country where that person could not see them or hear them. They just thought these thoughts. And what they found was that they said words like hola, for example. They found that if you thought the word in one country, it could reliably be picked up across the internet by a person in another country, indicating that words are neural activations when they're thought and that these thoughts can be communicated long distance as well. So when you're thinking about the law of attraction, the first thing that you do, you know, when you're sitting with someone across, you know, across the table, or you meet someone on a date, or you're going for a walk, just the idea of saying, I want to synchronize with this person, will start to make their brain synchronize with you, which is sort of a remarkable thing, right? So, so, so studies have shown that if you use the self-talk of, I want to synchronize with you. Rather than wasting your time saying, oh my God, I'm so freaked out. I don't know what's going to happen. How's this going to work out? Will I ever stay here? Will I be satisfied? You say, my intention today is to synchronize with this person. And you correct that over and over again. And that actually helps you understand how to connect with them. So the law of attraction in that instance is increasing synchrony because you are using self-talk for synchrony. Another technique is that, that people often think of empathy the way I just described it, right? Which is like, if I'm freaked out, you'll know I'm freaked out because your brain will feel it and you will feel my emotion. Well, that's called emotional empathy. There's another kind of empathy called cognitive empathy. And cognitive empathy is essentially walking in someone else's shoes. And to activate this, to enhance the law of attraction, you ask yourself, what is this person thinking? And, it, and if I'm walking in their shoes, how would I understand what they're doing? And the simple experiment that was done for this was an experiment that looked at 
um, a gas station owner who, who wanted to sell his gas station because he was going on a, on a world trip. But he came in so high that it was unreasonable. And so people were asked to try to talk him down. So some people said, you know, they went to him and they were like, listen, man, this is unreasonable. Um, you know, this price is too high. I don't really understand what this is. And, and of course, they got nowhere because they were just trying to reason from their perspective. The people who got somewhere were the people who said, okay, let me abandon what I think. Like, obviously, this is not even close to the comps. So I don't know why this person is coming in so high. But they started to ask him, they said, look, from your perspective, this makes sense to you. So can you help us understand what you're thinking? And that's when he said, well, I raised it that high because I'm ambivalent about selling the gas station because after I come back from my world trip, this is, I've been doing this my whole life. I'm not going to have a job. And those people said, okay, well, how about you lower the price and we'll give you a job for the rest of your life. And that's what got them to get what they wanted by walking in the other person's shoes. So in a relationship, for example, one person may say, um, you know, I, I want an open relationship. And you may be the kind of person who's like, no, that's just nonsense. Like, I think that's nonsense. Well, maybe you still think that's nonsense. But before you conclude that, why not try to understand what the other person is saying? Because the other person, I've had many occasions, certainly in the room as a therapist, seeing couples, talking to people where one person will say, I want an open relationship. The other person will say, I think that that's terrible. And then rather than saying, I think it's terrible, they say, okay, can you help me understand what this is? And the person will say, well, I'm afraid I might get bored with you. I'm afraid that I have a lot of needs and I don't want to betray you. So I want to make sure that I can see other people. Now, in some cases, this works out well. The other person says, you know, okay, I, I get it. We can both be open. That's fine. As long as we have some basic parameters for commitment. Like, can we, if we get married, can we truly commit that we, we will never leave each other and then know that we can hold each other to this? And then they will start to explore this. Or, you know, some, sometimes it doesn't work out. Sometimes the person who was open says, you know what, now that I've got to say this, I feel less afraid of this because I feel like I can say anything to you. So why don't we try not having an open relationship? And so you attract to yourself what you want by being open and walking in the other person's shoes. So those are some, some other uh, techniques that you can use to enhance the law of attraction for you. Oh, this is absolutely awesome. You talked a little about tinker, dabble, doodle, try. Um, I want to start with, can you explain what your thought process was or your motivation behind writing the book? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I noticed that when I see people in my office, a lot of people are focusing all the time, but they don't get stuff done. And a lot of people are focusing on their goals, but they never reach their goals. And a lot, so I, I asked myself, what's going on with this focus all the time? And it, it reminded me of some experiences I had had when I first got to Harvard. Um, I'm originally from South Africa, so when I got to Harvard, you know, I'm sort of a typical immigrant wanting to prove myself. I, I get in there and I, you know, I'm there all day. I read everything. I go to every didactic. I stay longer on the units with my patients than anyone else does. And then I get my first quarterly review, and I, I'm thinking, well, this is going to go well because I totally gave my heart and soul to this. And the first thing I say, they say is, you know what, you obviously know more information than people in your class. That's great. You obviously spend quality time with your patients. That's also awesome. But we're worried about you. And I say, well, what, what do you mean you're worried about me? And, and they say, well, the truth is you, you're not at Harvard so that you can become a machine or an automaton. Like we can always get information from places if we need it. What we want to do is we want to know why you're not sitting on the park benches 
letting your mind wander? Why are you not going off to Walden and going for a quick swim? Why are you not talking to your colleagues just by going for a stroll? Why are you going to 100% of didactics that shows no discernment? And you know, it really struck home that what they were saying was that they wanted real thinkers, people who could actually make a difference in the world, and people who would come up with creative ideas and not be afraid to actually pursue them. And that was one of my first points of understanding. And I realized, you know, more than half of all Americans do not take paid vacation. I mean, we are so obsessed with a life of continuous focus that we really need, if we want more out of life, I think we really need to learn how to unfocus strategically so that we're not distracted, but actually enhancing our brains. And so I wrote this book so I could help people understand this concept and also encourage them to build unfocused times into their days. How did you use that feedback to make those changes? Or do you feel like you were effective in making those changes? I'm assuming that you are because you wrote a book on it. But I mean, I've learned not to make those types of assumptions. (laughs) Um, But what yeah, like how how did you take that information and use it? And with your clients, um, like how has this recommendation, assuming that you're giving it, I'm assuming that you're giving it, how has that affected or changed their lives and the way they approach the world and their emotional mental health? Yeah, so I, I think with the first part of your question, which is like how did I take it and use it in my life, I think I took it and used it in my life, uh, but I think from time to time I I fall off the wagon. And I find myself really, you know, like overly focused. But I, I have to keep on correcting and say, okay, I'm doing that stupid thing again. Why don't I get back to building in more unfocused time? And so I would say overall, I, I historically had always had 15 minutes between 45 minutes of intense concentration. Um, you know, I got derailed at medical school where I just kept on working, didn't do as well in one year, and then just decided to build a focus back into my, my, the unfocused back into my work did much better, you know, then fell off the wagon in residency in that, in that first quarter, then went back and built these periods of unfocus into my day. So I've used it throughout my life. And I, I think one of the reasons my agent thought I'd be a good advocate for this is if you actually look at what I do, given what I had said I do, you know, I'm, I'm a musician, so I studied music, I'm still composing, I'm working in biotechnology, so I'm keeping the disparate parts of my life alive because I'm medically trained. I'm a psychiatrist, so I'm working as a psychiatrist. I'm an executive coach. I'm working as an executive coach. I think what this allows me to do is this kind of thinking allows me to make connections more deeply, and it allows me to come up with ideas in the tech companies or to apply the science in, in, in the room with my patients so that I can apply these principles of unfocus. So with regard to myself, I think I have been pretty uh, religious about applying this principle and, and developing it out. I think with regard to uh, my clients, there are my patients and then there are my executive coaching clients. I would say that my patients, uh, when they hear this at first, are always like, you know, no, I'm, I'm already distracted. I don't need, like, I know how to unfocus. Or they will say, I don't have enough time in the day to unfocus. I've got to get stuff done. And what I will say to them is what I told you earlier, which is that we all daydream 46.9% of the day in unproductive ways. So why not learn how to do that in a productive way? And I would say that the people who take that on end up doing much better in their lives. The people who are working like automatons, I think we struggle more to get them to where they need to get to. Then with my executive coaching clients, I would say recently I had a client uh, that had shifted their innovation budgets 
um, where they were they were using more of their actual income for innovation, but that presented them with a greater risk. And they were very focused. They had a consulting company come in. They were very focused on executing on the strategy, but they were finding that they were getting nowhere. And so they hired me to help them with their mindset shifts. And what I did do was I, I helped them understand that one of the unfocused shifts they need to make they needed to make was to think in terms of possibility rather than probability. Like a lot of people have their problems in reality, but they forget, I think, what Einstein said, which is that you cannot solve a problem at the same level at which it was created. Like an airplane was not made because there was another one hanging around. It was because someone dared to imagine it. The internet was made because someone dared to imagine it. If you have a problem in your life right now, you want to be able to be unfocused to dare to imagine it. And imagination is a very unfocused process that often starts with mind-wandering, and then you begin to hone in the, the different ideas that you have. And so with this company, we actually worked together just for a morning intensely and then rolled it into their strategy, and it massively shifted their goals, their aims, uh, and what they did, and it also shifted the bottom line in terms of the amount of money that they made. So I think that this works really well. I've, I'm not someone who's an autocrat, so I'm not someone that's going to say every technique I tell you is like 100% true for every single human being in the world. I believe that if a technique resonates with you, try it out and see if it works for you. The worst thing you can do is hear about something and not try it out because I don't think everything works for, for every person. Uh, however, I do believe quite strongly that we have to unfocus if we want to relax our brains. I mean, when the, the book is called Tinker, Dabble, Doodle, Try, I think like that becomes really clear, um, that philosophy. You talked about unstructured time in your own life, and you talked about wandering thoughts, and you talked about, I want to come back to this idea of using daydreaming usefully, but is this scheduled time on your agenda or calendar? Is it something that you have as a part of a practice on an, on something specific that you're working on? Like I do this for 45 minutes and then the last 15 minutes are spent at some level of reflective thought or a mind mapping or I'm journaling or like what specifically does this look like in your life? Yeah, so what, what I recommend to people is what I do, which is choose I think a lot of people don't like to do too many of these periods. I would do four to five a day, 15-minute periods uh, in a nine-to-five day. But if you want to start, choose two times, two 15-minute periods when your brain is normally in a lag. Now, most people go focus, 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 fatigue. And what I'm recommending you do is refuel your brain several times during the day by having these 15-minute periods so you can focus, unfocus to refuel, focus, unfocus to refuel, Focus, unfocus, to refuel. Now you might say, well, okay, that's great. I got it. So 15 minutes, maybe the last 15 minutes of lunch or last 15 minutes or 15 minutes in the middle of the afternoon when I normally have a slump. Next thing is, well, what do I do? Well, to this question of positive, you know, in addition to napping, which I mentioned earlier, and doodling, positive constructive daydreaming is a type of daydreaming that was discovered by Jerome Singer. And what Singer found was that if you just slip into a daydream while you're sitting at your desk, it's not helpful. Or if you are just ruminating over the prior night's indiscretion, it's not helpful. However, if you use positive constructive daydreaming, it's very helpful for your brain. It recharges your brain and it also allows you to become more creative and more productive. And there are just three things to remember here in that 15 minute period. Number one, designate the period. Number two, 
you have to be doing something low key. So something like knitting or gardening, you know, something that doesn't take a lot of mental energy. So obviously if you're bad at knitting, don't knit. Uh, and, and then the third thing you do is you imagine something playful or wishful. So you start to think of maybe lying on the beach or even lying on a yacht, you know, something that feels positive, playful and wishful and you let your mind wander. And you just do this for 15 minutes and then come back to your work. If you don't build this into your day, you're unlikely to do that. You know, in, amongst those, those different activities uh, that are low key, another one that I like to recommend is walking. Because a lot of people don't realize that walking outside will make you more creative than walking on a treadmill. They probably both help you lose some weight or manage your calories differently. But walking outside will make you more creative than walking on a treadmill. And walking on a curvy path outside will actually make you more creative uh, than simply walking around the block. So this is another kind of unfocused activity you can do at the end of a lunch break that will activate the default mode network, which is also, we used to think of as the DMN, which does the do mostly nothing network, but now we realize that this network does a lot. It's busy during unfocused times putting puzzle pieces together. So you could be sitting with potential answers to a lot of the questions you have, but if you don't set aside this unfocused time, your brain's never going to have time to actually allow these puzzle pieces to come together. So when you're talking about walking, you don't mean walking down the street, or do you, with ear pods in your ears sort of blasting music or on the phone? You mean just sort of like walking down the street with no really intention other than taking a 15-minute walk and being present and sort of absorbing the world? Or is there something else going on here? Or am I missing this entirely? No, I, I think in, in the studies there were no headphones of blasting music. So if we had to remain technical, I would say it's just walking on a curvy path so that you're not just walking linearly and and just walking. It's not even it's not even about mindfulness. It's literally about walking. Mindfulness is, sort of, is another thing altogether. Um, I think uh, in terms of blasting music, I certainly do that and enjoy that sometimes. Um, and your mind can wander with that as well. So I wouldn't rule that out, but I would I would say that walking down a road, you know, just for that kind of recharge and break from technology even can be really helpful to your brain. You talked about walking, you talked about doodling. What are some other examples of this? Right. So so far, just to just to list them, because we talked about them at different times. The first is positive constructive daydreaming. The second is napping. The third is doodling. Uh, the fourth is walking in, on, on a curvy path. Uh, the, the fifth would be a technique, uh, and the fifth is possibility thinking, which is you ask, how do I behave more like the exception than like the rule? Uh, and then the sixth uh, technique I'd mentioned is one called psychological Halloweenism, which is uh, a, coin, a term that I coined, which basically means embodying the personality fully of someone else. So the study showed that if you behaved, if you were trying to solve a creative problem, you were more likely to solve it if you embodied the entire personality of an eccentric poet rather than a rigid librarian. And, and, and the same people, when they took on the other role, had the same effect. You were more creative if you embodied the personality of an eccentric poet. So part of what you want to ask is, uh, in terms of, uh, in, in, in terms of, you know, how can I practice this? You can practice it with your family uh, at the table. You can practice it on a date. Maybe not the first date, but uh, I think afterwards it's a lot of fun. 
or you can practice this on innovation groups at work where you take on the identity of somebody completely different in this unfocused time, allowing your brain to solve something that it cannot usually solve in its own patterns. This makes me think of a couple of things. Um, but before I come back to them, you, you mentioned uh, thinking about yourself as the accept or thinking about things in terms of the exception, the rule. I forget exactly how you phrase that. Is that how you would ask that question in your brain? Or because I, f- I feel like that's not generally the way people talk. How would somebody ask this? Yeah, I, I think so. For example, sometimes people will say to me, well, I, I hate my job and I don't know what to do, but I've got a ni- you know, I've got this nine to five job I've got to keep because I've got to feed my family. And when I come home, I'm exhausted. I have no time to start um, an entrepreneurial career. Totally reasonable, totally understandable, definitely the norm. And it's not how you want to be thinking if you want your life to change. Rather, you want to ask yourself, how do other people who have two kids, a nine to five job, have to pay the rent, uh, have to so manage all these different things, how do they come home energized enough? How does the exception come home energized enough to do the thing that they truly want to do? And there you might then stumble upon the realization that perhaps they build unfocused times into their days so they come home with their brain refueled. And then you start to behave like that exception rather than the rule. So in that sense, you're pursuing the possibility of something. It's not unreasonable that you're tired when you get home. It's not unreasonable that you have no time. But there is someone in the world who has something very close to your situation who's been able to pull that off. That's the person you want to think like. You also talked a little bit about, well, you mentioned embodying like a a creative poet. I, I'm wondering if like that's something that you've used um, because you're using that example. But I, I thought about in acting, for example, people will use like this idea of animals or masks. And when I say animals, like they might say, you know, how would a giraffe walk and then try to move like a giraffe or how would a lion uh, behave and try to behave like a lion. And what this process allows people to do is break out of their normal tendencies and begin to explore other possibilities. And it sounds like what you're suggesting is people do the same thing with with personalities, just another way to manifest this. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. I think when we're stuck in these patterns, we don't want to stay in those patterns. What we want to do instead is, is take on this completely different way of thinking. And that's a great way to jog yourself out of the, the state and habitual way of thinking. I mean, I can imagine this being done from all kinds of different ways, whether it's like thinking about something from a different angle in a room or imagine if you were to see something from a different angle in the room or uh, like this idea of embodiment because it allows you to to sort of explore different shifts in perspectives or forms of expression. I think this is really fascinating. We've talked about strategies. I mean, I'm, I can't wait to, I mean, I haven't had a chance to read your book yet. This most recent one, I can't wait to read it because I think this stuff is super, super cool. What are some of the other benefits of sort of exploring this process? Like how does it affect maybe calmness, dealing with anxiety, productivity? You've talked about creativity. Like how else does this affect us? Uh, yeah, I, I think it really builds quality in, in, into your life. It allows your brain to become recharged. It allows you to become more creative. It also instills you with a sense of purpose so that you feel like you're more connected to what you truly want to do in life and you feel more self-connected. So I I think because you're more energized, more self-aware, more aware of the future, more creative, more self-connected, have a greater sense of purpose, uh, building these unfocused times into your day uh, can make a huge difference. 
I have another question. This is probably a little bit more personal, but I mean, one of the things I find fascinating about this interview, I interview a lot of people and I'm seeing a couple of things. One, or I'm hearing a couple of things. One is your ability to go into depth in some of these subjects um, is a lot higher than a lot of the people I interview. And I interview people who have doctorate degrees all the time. So your ability to go in depth in, in some of the stuff is is quite amazing. Second, you ha- have a wide range of interests. And that sort of was established when you talked about all the different things that you're you're working on. How do you structure your day? How do you structure your approach to new problems? I mean, you seem like a person who's very driven by their curiosity. and But you take that curiosity and you go a lot further than most people do with it. Do you think that's that's true? And I wonder if you can sort of self-evaluate a little bit and explore that with us. Yeah, I think I'm 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 a super curious human being and I think I always tell people I'm really opinionated but I never assume that I'm right. So I think that a lot of um uh, my own uh I think my 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 life has been a product of just wanting to refine my authenticity. I feel like you know, when we're kids, we're authentic in a particular way. We have dreams, we have wishes, and then life sort of sterilizes that out of you, and then you become this kind of non-paradoxical, linear human being who you're supposed to be. Like, you know, people. I dress in a very eccentric way, for example. Sometimes I like wearing sparkly clothes, and people are like, "What are you a Harvard professor? Like, what?" And it's like, "Well, I am, and I like to dress that way, and you know, I like wearing jewelry sometimes, and and sometimes I like dressing really formally, and." I think it's such a superficial thing, but if for the, for your entire life you put on this 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 air of being something, but actually you're something different, it takes up a lot of mental space. And so I feel like curiosity, together with the a yearning for authenticity and for connection, um, and and I and I think also, uh, you know, for a, a willingness to be wrong. Somebody asked me recently what you know we were. I was at a group meeting. Um, at McKinsey, actually, where I, I sort of collaborate on a couple of things, and they, they said, well, what, what is your superpower? And I said I had two. I think they were intimacy and idiocy. And, and the reason I said that was because I make so many mistakes, you know, and I, I'm happy to a certain extent I have selective memory uh, for some of those mistakes that it allows me to, to move on. Um, but, I, you know, I mess up a lot. I, I sometimes, you know, overstep where I should be. I'm I feel apologetic when I do. Sometimes I feel ashamed. I think over the years, I've just begun to realize that that being human is really about being all of these different things, and it doesn't have to make linear or logical sense. And so I think in my self-reflection, what I would say is that um, I'm I'm curious. I'm super excited about life for for reasons related to that curiosity. People fascinate me. I think it's eventually I stop seeing the physical uh, form the way that it is and i start relating to some kind of energy that's underneath that and that that just makes a lot of things and a lot of people super interesting to me so even people who are very different from me people who do things i would never do uh you know when i meet them i think partly as a psychiatrist you learn to do this but i think i was this way before it's just super awesome to understand that that we can continue to learn as we move through life and we can continue to refine who we are as long as we have some beacons. I think for me, I just I, I don't try to dictate to myself when and how I should do something. I just have deadlines 
that I know I need to reach. So I, I write books. I'm like, I got to finish by this time. I can play. I can meet with people. I can do what I want to do as long as I know that I've got to finish it by a certain time. And so I use I use my own personal deadlines to guide me on this process. Um, and I, I guess I could reflect on this for a long time, but I think that gives you a sense of um, of, of what I'm saying. I think the topic of an art project I'm working on right now uh, captures that, which is which is cracked but not broken the art of human vulnerability. I mean, I think it's really this is incredibly interesting. You when you describe beacons, you're referring to your goals then, or are you referring to something else? Yeah, I'm just just it, sometimes there are tangible things like I've got to finish a book or I have to finish a project or I'm responsible for part of a project. So that's what I mean by those beacons. But I don't believe in uh, a, I don't believe in driving myself with goals. I think goals come after a certain amount of self connection and they need to be refined and reflected on over and over again. And what is that process of refinement and and reflection? It's really iteration and learning. And, and taking time off to really think about it. More, I mean, there's nothing that mysterious about it. It really is just doing that and, and, and realizing that it's some stuff you've got to say no to. And you say no to it and it opens up a huge big space in your heart and in your life. And you know, that's, that's an example of a kind of thing that would happen. Uh, but for the most part, I just feel like I'm, I'm, I'm really driven by, by curiosity. Srini, this has been absolutely incredible. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. It's been a pleasure. And if you're listening to this, you want to learn more about Srini and all of the different things that he does, including uh, his most recent book, we're going to post some links in the Craft Christmas website in the description of this podcast so that you can learn about him more easily. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. Thanks so much for talking to me. It was really great talking to you and experiencing your own curiosity and authenticity as well. Thanks a lot, Chris. It's Dating Coach Chris Thona here. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. And we absolutely love making this podcast. We make this podcast for you. So if there's somebody that you want on the show, let me know. I will yell, scream, stand in front of their house, do everything I do to get them on the show for you. Also, don't hesitate to follow the podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes and Stitcher. You can also give us a shout out through social media, Facebook, Twitter, share it with your friends. And lastly, Go to the Craft Christmas website and create an account. There you can talk about the podcast and communicate with me directly. So thank you again for taking time to listen. You will hear again from me soon.